This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The poet Walt Whitman wrote in his 1867 edition of Leaves of Grass that New York was a city of the world, for all races are here, all lands of the earth make contributions here. How that city came to be on the island of Manhattan and what it has meant for the United States and the world over the centuries is the subject of Mark Aronson's encyclopedic new book, Four Streets in a Square, A History of Manhattan and the New York Idea. It's published by Candlewick Press. It's also accompanied by a rich array of digital sources and resources at markaronson.com slash four streets in a square. Mark, an author, editor, and historian, is on the graduate faculty at the Rutgers University School of Communication and Information. He was born in Manhattan and lives in New Jersey. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian and professor emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University, Newark. We're here thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've written many books. What gave you the idea for this one? I was staying at my parents' home again. They, I grew up in Manhattan. They lived in Manhattan, but they had moved to Nyack, and they, they had both worked in the theater and had a rich selection of theater books. And there was a book about Harrigan and Hart, the 19th century duo And it was very much about people from different ethnic groups within the city also making fun of different ethnic groups within the city to those ethnic groups in the audience. And I got very interested in how the city worked, how the combination of all these different people used the arts to both tell about themselves, make fun of themselves, make fun of others, in a way that could certainly be seen as derogatory and was in ways, but also gave space to new voices and experiences and how, how the city functioned as a place that pressed people together. And out of that pressure came deep conflict uh, and deep efforts to separate, but also immense new creativity. And that was, that was the inspiration for the book. Now, what's the New York idea that you refer to in the subtitle? Really, it is that that the experiment of placing everyone from everywhere in a small, confined space where they, on the one hand, fight physically, fight over politics, fight over opportunity, but also form new families across boundaries and lines that are kept more firm or hidden elsewhere, form new politics, form new social combinations, form new foods. 
but especially form new cultures. And it is this concept that mixture is a positive. And I think there is an element for me that we've been, you know, there are books coming out now are, are we on the edge of civil war? And there's so much discussion about our separation, our differences, our polarities, and our identities being so defined by something about this is what I am. And I feel that the New York history that I'm trying to recover is where we examine how am I shaded? How do I become different? How do I make the world different where it's not just me as I am, but me as I am inflected by, in many ways, you as who you are, because we're so close together that even as we at times disdain one another, we can't help being curious about one another and what comes out of that creative ferment. Now, people and culture are central to your book, but it's also got a strong geographic dimension. How did you come to organize it around four streets and a square? I didn't want to write an encyclopedia. And there are the two great volumes of Gotham that already tell us so much about the city's history up through 1919. I didn't have the will, the ability, the knowledge, or any reason to repeat that. So I wanted to think of a thematic structure that would allow me to get at this Manhattan's history and this New York idea that uh, that wouldn't force me to 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 hide anything but on the other hand would create more of a focus and I did find that my four streets in a square really did give me a way an organizing fashion to talk about the city's history and then direct readers to books like Gotham and specialist books to, you know, to fill in all of the rich details that, of course, I did not have the space to to engage. Yeah, I was also fascinated by how you chose your time frame. I mean, the book does go back to the days of Muncie Villages and it comes all the way forward to the recent past. But you put special emphasis on Manhattan since 1900. What led you to do that? Oh, I I think to some extent I got extremely interested in it because now once you have the great immigrant and the great immigrant arrivals, uh, you know, from Eastern Europe and Italy, and at the same time, the great migration within America and then followed by the Puerto Rican great migration, you had all of these actors together in what was then already greater New York. It now en- encompassed the five boroughs. And I, I was just, I, I thought this was, this is where the experiment really took off. Uh, I do have a particular interest in theater And this is the period of the invention of the Broadway musical, which plays a significant role in uh, my book, but also, you know, music and popular culture. One thing I've gotten very interested in, and maybe this will be another book someday, you know, when we tell the history of jazz, we talk about coming up from New Orleans, up the Mississippi to Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, New York, but at and then onto records and out to the world, etc. But at the same time, around the world, the same thing was happening with Fado in, in Portugal, mm-hmm. was, was mm-hmm. happening with tango in Argentina. There was something about how these forms of expression, music and dance, 
that had been disdained and viewed very as negatively or less than um, were accepted, were honored, were gained real popularity. And that certainly happened in New York. And then what New York did, which is similar to, of course, what Paris did, is to take this ferment of people's voices and dances and rhythms and make it into an inflection on and then dominant themes in popular culture. So there's this way in which New York has served to gather up what everything that's on its streets and to give it voice, give it air, give it broadcast, give it publication, give it, give it to the world. And, um, I, f- I find that very exciting. I should add that New York picks up whatever it can sell on its streets. And that can also be uh, things that one may wish it hadn't uh, given so much air to. I'm struck by how your periodization also tracks with New York's emergence as a communications capital in the 19th century and then a media capital in the 20th. I mean, broadcasting motion picture venues for spectators. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this really takes off in the 20th century and you've got absolutely. that. Absolutely. But, but, but I would say even looking at your work, I mean, I think you, you can start looking with minstrelsy and vaudeville the same way in which New York gave central voice and, and power and publicity and resources to, um, these forms of expression. For sure, for sure. Now, I love how you you are a walker in the city and that and that shapes the way you write this book. And I was wondering if you could take our listeners on an imaginary walking tour at some of your streets and squares. Let's start with Wall Street. What do you find there that people should be thinking about when they think of the history of America? Well, I begin with Wall Street as really typifying British New York. And if you were to walk down Wall Street from Trinity Church as sort of the emblem of Church of England, as the emblem of the, the city that saw itself as part of the British Empire, uh, you know, I, I'm working on doing some new uh, kind of um, vocal tours of my uh, streets where I also include multimedia. And, you know, at Trinity Church, the person who played the first organ there also brought Handel's Messiah to America. Hmm. And if you think of the lyrics in uh, the Hallelujah Chorus, and he shall reign forever and ever, that, of course, is speaking of God, but it's also a sense of the British reign. So that is where you begin on the street. And then if you come a little further going east on the street, um, you will come to City Hall. And City Hall gives you a chance to land on the two great trials of the 18th century, the Zenger trial, which in some ways led to uh, ideas of freedom of speech and and to First Amendment ideas. There has to be qualified, but there is a connection. And then uh, the 1741 um, slave revolt trials, which were Mm -hmm. held there. Mm -hmm. Then next on the street, you actually do come to a warehouse devoted 
to sugar. And sugar was so central to the New York story, both economically, the economics of sugar that New York handled and dealt with and the economics of, of, of selling goods to the sugar islands, but then also the issues around enslavement and the city. And when you come to the East River on that same Wall Street, you come to the meal market, the meal market, which was the slave market of the city in the 18th century. So with, and uh, for this, um, this uh, thing I'm recording, you know, the 1712 slave revolt, um, where uh, it has been attributed or was attributed at the time to Coromantes, to people who had scarification that indicated that they came originally from a particular part of West Africa. Well, in 1697, a, a, a European notated the very first example of African music. It was actually in Jamaica, and he called it a Coromante. So this was music attributed to the Coromante. So we can actually hear some of that music. So within one street, we go from he shall reign forever and ever to the disputes in law about the city, about power, uh, to the case which was likened at the time to the Salem witch trials, to beginning in some way to have some voice of the enslaved, those who were not considered in these other parts of the street. So that's an, one example of how I use a street to try to kind of touch upon these different moments uh, in time and to capture that aspect of the British of British uh, New York. Now, as you move forward, you look at Union Square. What's the reason for stopping there? Well, you know, my uh, doctoral advisor was Tom Bender, and I came to him one day and said excitedly, you know, I've just read a, a book and it says that you know, 42nd Street was the first time in history that the center of a city was not, you know, city hall or a market or a cathedral. And, you know, I was so excited because I was going to write that. And he said, no, you're wrong. That was Union Square. And he was right. That Union Square in the 19th century brought together politics. You had the, you had Tammany right near there. You had uh, the two clubs, the Union League and the Union Club, which were the sort of copperheadish and abolitionist-oriented clubs. You had vaudeville. You had Ladies Mile coming right near there. You had so many of the central forces in the city all concentrated in and competing over that space even before we get to the first Labor Day and Union demonstrations. And then as you get into the end of the 19th century, you begin to see the demonstrations with signs in, in Yiddish, signs in Italian. You know, all of that is gathered in that same space before 42nd Street, where you will see echoes of these, some of these themes, but you'll now have the subway. And you'll have a different uh, use of the space, but I, I thought. Who's going with that? So, what's the difference then between Forty Second Street and Union Square? 
I would say that 42nd Street, because it came in the 20th century, A, you had new forms of transportation, which made it more accessible cheaply to everyone. And the thing about 42nd Street, if you think about, you know, people gathering on New Year's Eve at the time, you know, to see the ball drop at what used to be the, the Times building, you know, at a certain point, you came to 42nd Street to be part of the crowd. The crowd itself was part of the appeal. It was the mass of everyone. It's the ticker tape on the building. So everyone together experiences something. But the second thing is because it's the 20th century, you now have, yes, theater and uh, performance and music, beer gardens, uh, but then film, radio, all of this Oh, a Tin Pan Alley, all of this kind of creation that's going out to the country and the world and the same time performance and at the same time the crowds. And I would say um, that, that I, I would say it's Union Square accelerated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And electrified and broadcast. Electrified I'm- and broadcast yeah. is exactly yeah. right. Now, where does 125th Street come into your scheme? Well, clearly, 125th Street comes in as as the defining thoroughfare of Harlem. You could make arguments for 135th Street because of where some of the jazz clubs were, etc. But it, 125th Street was always considered, you know, the central thoroughfare of of Harlem, and where. Um, some of the big clashes in Harlem took place. Adam Clayton Powell uh, leading the "Don't buy where you can't, uh, don't shop where you can't uh, work," and um, it, so important clashes uh, began there. Um, it, it it was seen as the center, but even pre that, you know, Oscar Hammerstein the first, who essentially created Forty Second Street as an entertainment uh, complex first created 125th Street by bookending 125th Street with two grand, um, you know, performance spaces. So it even before the Great Migration, uh, 125th Street um, served as this entertainment center and and gives me a way to begin talking about Harlem. You know, I went to school from third grade to 12th grade on 110th Street between 5th and Lenox. And every so often, you know, I would go up to 125th Street and I would see the Louis Michaud's famous bookstore. And so you were seeing sort of the black nationalist, internationalist argument there on display, uh, you know, uh, as, as part of your uh, as part of my world. Now, as an old Greenwich Village resident, a former Greenwich Village resident, I was really tickled to see West 4th Street as one of your streets. Well, Well, I had a choice because the other option would have been 8th Street and 8th Street would have, aside from giving me a way to talk about Jimi Hendrix, would have meant I could have included uh, St. Mark's Place as the, you know, the continuity. And there's an argument for that. There's a lot that did happen in St. Mark's Place. But uh, to me, positively, 4th Street is there, obviously, for Dylan, but also going back to the John Reed period, where if you look at 4th Street uh, as Washington Square South, and so much from there to McDougal, 
so much of that early village uh, took place. Polly's, um, the Liberal Club, the Provincetown Playhouse, the Washington Square Bookstore. But there's another reason I picked West 4th Street, because there are many great books about the village and, you know, telling all the famous stories and complicating them one way or another. But none of them deal with, to me, one of the central aspects of 4th Street is the basketball court. And there's two reasons it's important. One, it is where the Golden Swan was. Golden Swan was known as the hellhole, was where O'Neill went to drink and played a part in how he developed Iceman Cometh. Um, and O'Neill's early work had a lot to do with African-Americans, including um, in Iceman Cometh, and that had something to do with who people he met there in the village. But the thing about the West 4th Street basketball court, which is not often enough recognized, is it's on the A-line. And because it's a a stop on the A-line, you had African-Americans from Brooklyn and from Harlem playing in the village. And so it became a kind of free display area of talent that a lot of the people who were in the village might not ever have seen. And uh, I... I think that is a really important part of the crisscrossing that took place in the city and, and that we need to pay attention to. Now, I was struck by this when I was reading the book. There are no avenues in your selection. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, I, the thing about it is if I did Broadway, mm-hmm. I mean, that I'm sure it exists already. That's a book in itself. I, I think, you know, certainly one could talk about aspects of the different avenues, but they're so long that it, I, I, I would sort of be forced to spend the whole book on any, any one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly I could have told some joke about um, the fact that ap- no New Yorker knows the term Avenue of the Americas. But I'm not <laughs> sure anybody else knows it now either. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, you know, your book argues that the density of Manhattan put different kinds of people close to each other, fostering curiosity, conflict, and new cultural hybrids. What are some of the most important cultural forms to emerge from this mixing that people ought to know about? Well, obviously, you could uh, vaudeville for one, um, but as we move into the 20th century, you can certainly talk about ragtime, um, and and there you'll get into the questions. I mean, actually, I would go back to, to blackface minstrelsy, and, and which blackface minstrelsy is really complex and fascinating and important. You know, I, I attended a, a, by Zoom a panel that was held at NYU about this in February, African American History Month, and very rich discussion of black, blackface minstrelsy. And one of the points I wanted to bring up in the book is that obviously it was horribly demeaning and stereotypical and harmful 
down to the dolls test in you know in Brown versus Board of Ed ways in which African American people were in, uh, absorbed negative self images. But it's also true if you look at it internationally at other cultures that have been deeply divided. The elite culture did not tend to to try to become almost as in the movie Get Out to become that which it disdained. If you think of the Nazis, they tried to eliminate Jewish influence in music. They didn't dress up as Jewish musicians. If you think of the Afrikaners, who are the direct parallel to the Dutch in New York, the only people in South Africa who listened to Black African music were people who were against apartheid. So what was it in America that made white people, even in disdain, show a kind of admiration and need for African-American musical talent and, and, and musical rhythms and musical instruments? And um, so I see this crisscross even in blackface minstrelsy. Um, and Especially in the instrumental music and the dance, it seems to me, right? Absolutely, the absolutely. Mixing going on there. Look, if you if you think of William Henry Lane and the invention of tap dance, which is drawing from Irish dancing and drawing from patting juba and African American expression, there is crisscross and crisscross. Uh, on that website that you mentioned, I have a recording of Jump Jim Crow done by a contemporary African-American uh, group. And it's kind of fascinating because they, in effect, what they're doing is they're saying this is ours to make use of, to have fun with, to, to play with, to enjoy. And um, so I, so that's blackface minstrels. But ragtime, again, you can see this as absorption. But ragtime is a perfect case because you have Scott Joplin and Maple Leaf Rag, but then you have Irving Berlin. Now you can argue whether Alexander's ragtime band even is ragtime, and you can certainly, again, talk about co-opting and taking, but here you have this Jewish-Russian immigrant who is finding something to say in, in these rhythms that, that become very, very popular. He then also did a knockoff version of his own called Alexander's Bagpipe Band, which is all in Scottish brogue and is quite funny. And, um, and so th- there you have a crisscross. Then obviously in the, the dances the, that came to 42nd Street, um, James Reese Europe uh, being the concert master for the castles. And so that even as Vernon and Irene Castle are these two chaste white dancers, they needed his music. And this is then leading us to Burt Williams and leading us to Shuffle Along and into Broadway. Then, of course, you have Robeson. You have all of these ways that music in New York, theater in New York is drawing from a variety of voices and talents and making something new. The other thing I would have to add here, and this gets back to the village, certainly, but also other parts of the city, New York, like any city, like any place in the world, had gender nonconforming population and certainly involved in in the arts. And so you had people, I think in a sentence, it's this, people who were 
in the rest of the country, in the rest of the world, disdained, viewed as outsiders, rejected, could use popular culture in New York, perhaps passing or in disguise or in co-opted versions or in limited versions, you know, Burt Williams, the tragedy of Burt Williams being that he had to always play a defeated person, even though he did it so movingly and deeply that he became, you know, the first black Ziegfeld star. Um, but it's, it's that outsiders could use popular culture in New York to have a place, to have a voice, to say something to the world. Um, yeah. So what role does New York's dynamic economy play in this? It's yeah, been, that's a really the history of the city. It's been a place of booms and busts. Richard, how does this play into the New York idea? Well, what I think about this a lot because I think the history has gone, New York has gone through many times when it seemed like it might not survive. And I think, you know, just two days ago in the New York Times, there was an article about, you know, with people, so many companies allowing people to work from home and the knock on effects of all the dry cleaners and lunch counters who have fewer people to serve. Will the city be able to, um, you know, recover? Will it, it? And I would say up till now, the answer has been always yes, that having so many people seeking expression and having the opportunity to create something new, to make something new, to be heard, the city has been able to self-regenerate. And so the, the famous and obvious example being, I remember as a teenager when Soho was an abandoned warehouse district, you know, empty streets as, as the small manufacturing and left. And then just at that moment, artists, of course, moved in. Now, what will happen to the city now, um, you know, with real estate so expensive with, uh, to, as parts of it empty out, will that same creative ferment be possible uh, that same finding a new new voice. I I tend to be optimistic. Um, I I think it can because I and this is something that I've thought a lot about in COVID when people said and they still say you know people would like to work from home. You stay in your jeans if you're a parent. You know you can keep an eye on your child or whatever it is. But I also think what we've seen in COVID is how much people hunger to be around other people, how much they want that contact, whether it's passing people on the street or attending an event or seeing someone do something live. I think people hunger for that kind of density of community. And I think that gives New York a possibility that it can regenerate once again, you know, how exactly those Midtown office spaces will be used, uh, I don't know. Your focus is on Manhattan, but since 1898, New York has been a city of five boroughs. So what do the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, and Staten Island have to say about the story of the New York idea? Well, they certainly have contributed to it, and I think I could, you know, my son, who's a junior um, in high school, had to do a major, major paper. 
And he did his paper on the origins of hip hop, which is a originally a Bronx story and Bronx then flowing into Manhattan and the city and the rest of the world. But it was the same story. It was, you know, as the city's economy shifted and towards this international finance losing uh, its industrial base, just as you had new immigration, people needing work. And, uh, you know, so the city under uh, Giuliani, under Koch, even back to Lindsay, you know, being really unhappy about things like graffiti in the subway or, you know, viewing it as the Bronx is burning and, uh, you know, maybe we should just let it all burn down, uh, I think Reagan said. But um, instead, what came at that exact moment were new outbursts of creativity, the creation of new forms of music in which people found an expression that had to had to be heard. And when that kind of new music met the downtown punk scene, um, the ferment of that leading in fine art towards Basquiat, leading in music towards hip hop and rap, which then also takes us into Queens and uh, Russell Simmons and Hollis, you know, something that was born in one part of the city touched other parts of the city and drew on those talents and then came to the world. And uh, I think I don't know as much about the um, other parts of the city as I do about Manhattan, but I do think the same sorts of ferment uh, take place. And I do have to give a shout out uh, here to to my wife who grew up in Queens, but where she grew up was, um, as probably many of you know, you know, one of the problems with creating the UN here was there was not integrated public housing, which would be needed for the many different kinds of families who would come here to work in the UN. And so Parkway Village was created in Queens to have this international and interracial space, which is where my wife grew up. And so I have to say that was a, a, a kind of an expression of my view of the New York idea, but, it, but the, the initial step was taken in Queens. You know, your book is packed with visual images and maps, and it's accompanied by a rich array of digital resources at markaronson.com. Tell us what you were trying to accomplish with that and the significance of all that material you've placed online. Sure. Um, I think that I'm the kind of person of when I'm researching things, I love listening to anything that may be related. And really, I think the key moment which made me think I had to do this is when I was researching that Benny Goodman concert on January 16th, 1938, the first integrated jazz concert at Carnegie Hall. And there are recordings of it and recordings in particular of Sing, 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 which was his final piece where they kind of needed to blow everyone's ears off. And there is a film made in 1935 about New York City that really touches on my four streets and a square uh, even showing the sort of prejudice towards Harlem that I uh, touch on. Um, and the soundtrack to that is Sing, Sing, Sing from that concert. And I felt that that was such an experience that why shouldn't readers be able to feel that drive, feel that propulsion 
while they were reading about the event or back to talking about integration, you know, there was at the end of that year, 38, there was from spirituals to sing and swing again at Carnegie Hall. And out of that was born Cafe Society and Cafe Society, which was created to be the integrated jazz club. And due to a wonderful his, uh, music historian, David Brent Johnson, I have music recording actually of Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit at Cafe Society. So you get to not just read about or think about or hear about the city, you you get to experience these these rhythms, these these and and the other thing I found at Columbia University has digitized a lot of guidebooks, photo guidebooks to the city from the turn of the 20th century. And so I wasn't going to include all of those guidebooks in my book, but why not let people know, here's, click on this, and you can see how the city was displayed in these uh, guidebooks. And so it just was a chance to share more of the city. Back to Robeson, I'm sure many of you know the two versions of Old Man River, the original uh, version um, uh, in which is more about being tired and weary and scared of dying, and the second version where he'll keep on fighting. Well, again, why shouldn't you hear that? You can. So much of that is available. And I really do think that we as historians have to start to think in three dimensions. What can words say? What can image and design say? And then what can multimedia say? How can we bring all of these? Because those resources are so available to us, why don't we share that as part of the experience of exploring history? That's a great idea. What are you working on now to take I'm that idea? I'm working uh, on a book. Um, this is which will be for sort of middle grade readers. I'm doing it with Paul Friedman, who's a professor at Yale. He wrote a couple of books about American cuisine, and we're trying to tell a history of America through ten meals, not Thanksgiving or any of the things like that, but ten different sort of beats where food tells us something about our history from a salmon feast uh, celebrated by indigenous people in uh, what is now the state of Washington um, through, uh, you know, corn coming up through New Mexico. And then Paul found just, you know, one of the things we never really explained to, to people is the whole Louisiana purchase. Like why we're, why was France willing to sell all of this to us? And it's, of course, because of Haiti. But Paul found this meal in New Orleans in the shift from Spain to France and then to us, where they had this huge party with 24 different kinds of gumbo. And it seemed to me, if you're going to try to tell this nodal moment in American history, why not use that? Uh, And then I'm tell, for example, the history of the soda fountain. And I got curious because so often when we talk about soda fountains, it's sort of in the white world. And I didn't know anything about black owned soda fountains, which there were, nor did I know that the first successful civil rights protest led by teenagers was at a um, soda fountain in, uh, I Iowa, I believe, the Dokum 
uh, soda fountain. So it just, I found this entryway into different uh, points in American history through different aspects of, of food. That sounds like a terrific idea, and I, I look forward to reading that book and maybe even recreating some of the meals. <laughs> I really do. Look, I'm Rob Snyder, and I've been talking to Mark Aronson about his new book, Four Streets in the Square, A History of Manhattan and the New York Idea, for the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you.